Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor mcnamara Strap. I don't know why, but I almost said your name when I was doing that. <laughs> um, this is the third episode of our uh week of episodes on the form of the sonnet closing out poetry month national poetry month to 2021 and this episode deals with some of the main sonnet writers who carried the form forward in its early years which is kind of a wild thing to say because the early years are basically the first hundred years of the sonnet um, but like these are the the writers who were kind of getting it done before it uh, attained the exalted level of literary uh, ubiquity that we know it to have today. And so we are going yet again back to the back back way back in time uh, and across the ocean over to Italy. That's where it was. We're going back to the 1300s, which I actually am curious, but. That was also the century, now that I got plagues on the mind, was the century of the Black Death. And Petrarch was hanging out, survived it. Made it uh, the sonnet survived the Black Death. Indeed it did. Um, and some of the way that it survived is through these writers. Um, some of the most notable ones are folks whose names will be familiar from other works, perhaps better known for things that are not sonnets. Um, one of the very early uh, adopters of the sonnet was Guido Cavalcanti, uh, who was around from about 1255 to 1300. So he kind of straddles. Uh, we talked a little bit in our very first episode about Giacomo Dolentini, who was the inventor of the sonnet. He was around until 1270. And so uh, Guido Cavalcanti's life uh, intersects with his. And then uh, just a little bit later in the timeline is a little dude you may have heard of from some of his other stuff, Dante Alighieri, um, perhaps best known for his divine comedies and Terza Rima and other poetic 
works, um, but also a major literary figure writing sonnets. And then probably most famously and farthest along in the timeline is Petrarch himself. And Petrarch was around from 1304 to 1374. And so he's a good kind of 40 to 50 years farther along than the other two, but they were the kind of three big figures who are pre-Renaissance and into the very early years of the Renaissance, working in the sonnet form in a way that kept it at a sort of high level of literary presence that was then picked up upon in the Renaissance era and was then, of course, referenced by writers like, uh, what was that guy's name? Bunch of plays. Uh, Stratford upon Avon. Uh, it's it's Bill or Willie Mac, William Mac, something. Uh, Mac, Macduff? McGuffin? I think that was it. It was William okay. McGuffin for sure. <laughs> no, uh, William Shakespeare uh, and, and other writers <laughs> who were very influenced by the Renaissance and were sort of referencing it later on. This is kind of where where a lot of that inspiration comes from. Because um, the Renaissance really began between about 1350 and 1400 in Florence, and that does then intersect a little bit with uh, with Petrarch's kind of timeline. And uh, I kind of likened it to very, it's a very imperfect comparison, but a little bit like um, how the uh, the Beats were sort of doing counterculture writing and intellectual work that became kind of underpinnings for some of what was going on then particularly in literary circles in the counterculture of the 1960s when it became kind of the main event culturally um i i feel like there's a little bit of a resonance with how these writers and the sonnet kind of provide some of that groundwork for what then becomes the renaissance these are some of the folks who are doing that you know dante's writing the divine comedies and also sonnets Petrarch is kind of working intensely in the sonnet in a way that that really gets picked up upon, but he's also doing other stuff. These are kind of the writers who fit into that space of the of the timeline. No, exactly. It's also somewhat similar to Petrarch in some ways is like a Jane Austen of the novel Ooh. where you have. Um... That's better. <laughs> no, I like I like the beats a lot. I think that. That um, especially as as the beats relate to the movement itself, I think and, and that that analogy works really well um, in terms of the form, you know, in the early uh, in England, in the novel, the novel is generally thought to have sort of emerged in um, the 1700s in England. Um, but in the, the first novels, they were like, what is this? I mean, the word novel existed, but that, so there was a lot of time being like, this is what I'm writing. And it's like sort of fiction, but it's like, not just like a, a moral fable. Anyway, they would have, it's funny to read if you read like the early, early editions of, of early, early novels, like Samuel Richardson's Pamela or something, they often have like prefaces from just like prominent people who are like, I swear it's good. Uh, <laughs> because like the idea of a novel was like so weird that like it needed more <laughs> hype for people to be like, okay, well this person's legit and um, 
you know, he says it's good, so I'll go pick it up. But then, you know, Jane Austen really, she she comes along um, toward the end of the 1700s and into the 1800s. And partly she she perfects some of the formal techniques that we now recognize as part of many novels of, you know, like what's called like free and direct discourse, where you have this third person, you know, protagonist and like, you're outside the character, but then like it slips into their interior, um, you know, state and their thoughts, um, but while like maintaining the kind of third person. And that was like really, we take it for granted now, but um, all the early novels were basically epistolary, like they were letters, cause that's the only like conceit. And then there's like crazy, like conceits of like people writing like, oh, someone's coming up to the study. I better stop writing now. Or like <laughs> um, all these things where they just hadn't figured out the like, you know, the kinks. And so, but then also by the time Austin is writing, the novel has kind of like not calcified, but sort of matured into something that is. And of course she's much to do, I think with that maturation um of the novel as a, as a form in its own right and i think petrarch it seems like sort of did that for the sonnet definitely and i think there's quite a few reasons for that um and and some of it comes down to just like what petrarch's life was about <laughs> because it neatly fit with some of the existing uh elements of the sonnet that we've been talking about both on a literal and perhaps even on a meta level um because on oh. the literal level so like Petrarch's dad was a lawyer and Petrarch was supposed to become a lawyer and then he was supposed to become a clergyman and he kind of didn't do either of those things. <laughs> and then back in a National Poetry Month long, long ago, before that name had been applied to April, on April 6th, 1327, <laughs> at, at, at a church service, Petrarch saw from across the cathedral of a, a woman who captured his imagination for basically the rest of his life. Her name is Laura. And, uh, right. you know, the great Volta of Petrarch's life happened there. <laughs> yes. Yes, it did. And so yes, he, it did. He, he, he wrote about her quasi obsessively for the rest of his life. And so that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of living out the idea of courtly love that we talked about a little bit, which is like, he made up this idea of Laura, who he saw one day when he was 22, and basically just ran with that idea of Laura for the rest of his life. Um, which was not a short life. Which was not, no, he had like, 48 more years to ruminate on Laura and never talk to her. Um, <laughs> and so like this idea of an exalted, perfect woman, similar to the idea of a chivalric knight dedicating his deeds to a, a woman of the court married and unattainable is like an undergirding aspect of Petrarch's life and work that fits so neatly with the existing sonnet tradition coming out of the end of the medieval years when courtly love as an idea is prominent, his life kind of having this disruption in it fits very neatly with the idea of the sonnet as a, um, a form that contains contradictions. 
And so he writes a lot of sonnets about his love for Laura. He, he made that choice and he made it strongly and he made it over and over again. Um, yes, and it, I'm sure to, <laughs> to our contemporary years, um, it, there's some clear uh, gender problems that he's- uh, Just a few, yeah. Just, just, just a, a few. Um, the, the sort of idealization of women, the um, often the objectification of women and her beauty, um, you know, the, the projection, which is related to idealization, but that, that kind of like, um, oh, we're not like talking to each other. We're not, it's just like me wanting you who is unattainable and like this permanent difference, distance between us and stuff like that. It actually reminds me a little bit of the Ivan Boland poem that we talked about a long time ago, uh, A Woman Without a Country. Yeah, and in, in that poem, Ivan Boland, who, who's a wonderful poet, contemporary Irish poet, um, who, who wrote, who has written and continues to write against the very sort of male-dominated Irish canon, um, has this wonderful poem, A Woman Without a Country, that we talked about. Um, and there's this line, and it's talking about this, this guy who is, is putting together the newspaper and is basically like, um, basically rendering a woman that will then be on a newspaper, I believe. Um, yeah, it's, like and, a, it's a scene like of, of engraving, basically. Exactly. Um, and there's this line toward the end, which is like, um, you know, and the little pitiless tragedy of being imagined. Um, and it's a very different context, but there's still this sense of both the sort of like projection and imagined nature of women in the, in the eyes and the hands of these sort of male creators, but also the, the, the control and the agency is, is with the men in these situations. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, one thing that it does continue to interest me about like Petrarch, not like biographically, but in terms of his tropes is, I mean, I feel like we're, we're we've, and, and, you know, but like even in contemporary like pop like movies and stuff like that, um, the, you know, this is no new bold thing to say, but just like the male gaze is very strong. And yeah. also just the, the characterization of, of the guy who falls in love with this woman and then like, never talks to her until the end or whatever. And then also the fact that the women in the movie, I mean, which is like, has been made sort of iconic by like the Bechdel test or whatever, you know, their own, their whole existence in, in the films is just to talk about the men or whatever. So he certainly did not <laughs> begin probably these patriarchal problematic uh, representations and, and gendered tropes, but 
he is definitely um <laughs> yeah he definitely runs with it and and makes it also by by fusing i think like by um by running with his idea and love for laura alongside his sort of perfection of the sonnet as a form he kind of weds pun not intended but i like the accident yeah, of job. it yeah, that was um good. <laughs> he weds the trope with the form um and and like you know so there's there's been a lot of wrestling i think with those tropes uh over time through the sonnet definitely shall we hear an example of this i think we shall I think my favorite should. part so what i love to imagine just whenever i read a sonnet of petrarch's is like this is if this was a conversation <laughs> right so, or like if somebody was asking them somebody goes up to petrarch and it's like what's the deal with laura and then he replies with like insert sonnet here and then the same person goes over to laura and is like so what's up with this petrarch dude and she just goes who <laughs> so i like to keep that in mind anyway this is uh petrarch's sonnet 90 translated by anthony mortimer upon the breeze she spread her golden hair that in a thousand gentle knots was turned and the sweet light beyond all measure burned in eyes where now that radiance is rare. And in her face there seemed to come an air of pity, true or false, that I discerned. I had love's tinder in my breast unburned. Was it a wonder if it kindled there? She moved not like a mortal, but as though she bore an angel's form. Her words had then a sound that simple human voices lack. A heavenly spirit, a living sun, was what I saw. Now, if it is not so, the wound's not healed because the bow grows slack. So, Petrarch has a crush, I'm pretty sure. Yes. If I had he, to guess. He is crushing. Yeah, just a bit smitten very very smitten um and yeah like all of the various tropes that you so rightly pointed out are present here where he's like oh she's an angel no she's not a mortal no mortal could be as interesting or beautiful like she floats around she doesn't walk she you know it's like <laughs> okay but also she's still a person um, and that's exactly like this is where it kind of tips wildly out of the realm of just being you know, complimentary or sweet or nice into being like com objectifying because this is not about like a human person. This is an idealized version of someone that no one could ever live up to and does not correspond to being a human being. He's literally saying she moved not like a mortal. She bore an angel's form. Like she's not a person. She's a heavenly spirit, a living son. Like it's positive descriptors, but <laughs> it's not about a human woman yeah and that's not great <laughs> uh but you're, you're right he, petrarch is sort of this welding point between this kind of writing style uh and this version of love or desire and the sonnet it becomes kind of 
iconically linked. Um, yeah, and you'll notice, you know, in the in the first couple episodes, we we talked about certain sonnets being Petrarchan. Um, yeah, and and so this the, the English translation replicates um, the Italian, um, and so it has this A B B A A B B A for the you know the first eight lines, um, you know, which is sometimes called it the octave. Um, and then, oh yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting rhyme scheme, um, in the last six. It's usually, the last six are usually either C, D, C, D, C, D, which I believe this one is, or C, D, E, C, D, E. Right. Yes. And those are the two. So Petrarch doesn't just write one kind of sonnet, but those are pretty much the two that he fluctuates between for that last six. And so this right. one, again, I, we always recommend that you look at the poems that we talk about while we talk about them, because obviously it's that is one of the challenges of the audio medium. It could be great for hearing sound resonances and for hearing the works, but like to for this kind of rhyme scheme stuff, it's a lot easier to look at it. But the those last six, again, it's either C, D, C, D C D or C D E C D E. And this one is is the first of those two. Yeah, yeah. And so that octave, you have the like golden hair was turned, measure burned is rare. That's your like first quatrain, your first four lines. Um, come in air that I discerned, breast unburned, kindled there. Um, so it's repeating that same A B B A. And then, but as though her words had then, voices lack a living sun. It is not so. Bow grows slack. Um, and yeah, and so then that's the kind of sestet or two tercets. Um, but yeah and 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 also you know in the second in the second episode we talked about the volta um and that kind of turn and the you know we'll talk about the the shakespearean more in the next episode but um the traditional volta in a petrarchan happens after the octave or after the first eight lines and that's definitely happening here where the first eight lines is like talking about her hair I loved her, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then this, the, the next six is like when it gets into that, as Jack was sort of talking about that heavenly idealism projection, like she moved not like a mortal, but as though she bore an angel's form. Um, yeah. And the, the whole beginning is sort of the data points of like <laughs> a hair out of sight like all this other stuff amazing and i'm in love with her and then it kind of gets to that thematic level which is like i think she might be an angel I'm working on a theory <laughs> over here <laughs> too good for this world in old petrarch's book <laughs> yes the poem's kind of like magic is probably not best replicated in this translation, not because of the translation's fault, but because a lot of times when you're trying to get the rhyme scheme to work from one language to another, you kind of have to like mess with the syntax. And, you know, you just get 
in eyes where now that radiance is rare. It sounds not like incredibly natural, but um, that's, I think, more a function of just the, the awkwardness of going into English sometimes. Yeah, but it's it's um, it's still an interesting, you know, I, I, I keep thinking about the the last line. It's an interesting kind of metaphoric thing that he's saying where, you know, the wound's not healed because the bow grows slack. And, you know, like a living sun was what I saw. Now, if it is not so, the wound's not healed because the bow grows slack. Um, yeah, which I'm still kind of teasing out. It's kind of, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but it's like, so, I mean, the bow, you get the bow and arrow, bow goes slack. It's like, it's not taut, like ready to fire. And then maybe I'm thinking of like a Cupid bow being struck, but I'm not necessarily sure about that. But like the wounds not healed because the bow grows slack, this connection between sort of being wounded by love, but that, that wound keeping on because the bow, I don't know, it's not like ready to fire anymore or something. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you, what you make of the meaning of that last sort of, I guess stanza really. Yeah. I kind of puzzled over that whole stanza. Cause it's an interesting, uh, like get out of jail free kind of idea of like, well, even if she wasn't the heavenly being, I thought she was, I'm um, still in love. <laughs> and I feel like that's, sort of a his way of just saying like i'm still in love and so i still feel that way even if it's not literally true um so <laughs> uh. it's just <laughs> i mean that's that's where i went with it anyway and like yeah the wound's not healed because the bow grows slack yeah i think it's very much that cupid's arrow kind of idea of like just because there isn't a weapon that wounds anymore doesn't mean that the wound wasn't done like just right. just because you unstring the bow and you like hang it up or whatever yeah uh, doesn't mean that you didn't still shoot the arrow and that it didn't still like cause a wound you know right. like, the experience has already happened to him he's already seen this ethereal figure um and been transformed into captain lovestruck or whatever <laughs> <laughs> you know like he's it, it's done his his you know superhero origin story has been completed you can't un-iron man him at this point right i already made the suit of armor it's done no that's true that's definitely true um yeah and that kind of gets at i mean it is so it's like sonnet 90 so presumably there have been 89 before this one um and it kind of gets to what you were talking about where you know he sees her is it believe that he only sees her that one time that one day it is thought to be that he saw her that one time that one day wow um, there are some theories as to who she was not entirely right. confirmed as far as i know but i believe he may have like seen her some other times but it is mostly for sure known that april 6 1327 he <laughs> saw her which is like a wild thing to know almost 700 years later <laughs> Yeah, to 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 know the day that some person saw another person six hundred and ninety-four <laughs> years and several days ago, as we record at the end of April in twenty twenty-one, 
Yeah. On April 6th, 1327. I mean, like, 22 year old Petrarch was like, whoa, it's sonnet time. (laughs) Or, you know, whatever he said to himself that day. Yeah, I was thinking, I, I like, I only know like the date, date of like one other person but it's not it's like cheating because it's just like when like jesus was like killed and stuff but that's like a tautology because it's like based on the whole calendar system is just based on whatever right, day yeah, that I mean, is that's so like okay it's not <laughs> i just was thinking like in my memory what other days what other days that long like also like to put it in perspective obviously a lot has changed about the world since then but can you imagine a contemporary writer who like had a significant part of their literary output and it was like based on someone they saw one time from across a subway car yeah and they just kept writing about this person yeah because the only thing that comes close that i can think of which is not is like Yates was very in love with this woman, Maud Gone, who was this like Irish radical. But there's a big difference in that A, they knew each other. I was gonna like, say, they ever talk? Yeah. <laughs> they have they a conversation once or <laughs> more talked. than once even. <laughs> they definitely talked. Um yeah, no, they 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 definitely talked. Um and he ended up marrying someone else, and but but for the only parallel is that he he writes about her probably over the course of his entire life, pretty much. Right. But it is also the case that <laughs> he knew her for much they had of his some life. form of a relationship. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like and I was walking in the park one day <laughs> and happened past a fair young lady. <laughs> yeah, but it it this poem does suggests that because there's also that that i mean it's a biographical knowledge but it's also like him saying you know if it is not so the wound's not healed because the bow grows slack is also like all right you know i'm 90 sonnets in i haven't seen her in god knows how long like you know if she's not actually a living son like you know i'm still in love because in a way he's feeding his own fire clearly and... Yeah, Petrarch has never heard of the sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But to your point about the structure of the Petrarchan sonnet, uh, Monica Yoon wrote this really fantastic piece uh, called Petrarch's Hangover, in which she sort of digs into the structure of sonnets and particularly the Petrarchan structure, because we'll get into in our next episode the way that Shakespeare kind of got in there and futzed around and what becomes known as the Shakespearean sonnet, which is probably the best known version of the sonnet for contemporary, you know, folks who are learning about the form. Uh, It's also sometimes called the English sonnet. It has a different structure and it's fundamentally gives the poems a very different feel, Um, but kind of her take on the Petrarchan sonnet. So she, the piece is structured around, you know, more than just this, but one of the, the kind of the first argument that she makes, she has an extended discussion about a necklace that comes up a little bit in this, but basically talking about why she resists the idea that any poem of 14 lines should be called a sonnet, an idea that we will return to another time in this series. But basically she says 
this. So even without rhyme, even without regular meter, for me, the structure, the sin qua non of the Petrarchan sonnet looks a lot like, and she's been talking about this necklace, a fundamental disproportion in the ratio of four to three or eight to six, the Petrarchan disproportion joined by a turn. So what is the effect of this structure, of the Petrarchan disproportion? My argument is that this disproportion creates what I call a hangover effect, which affects how we experience the poem in time. And she digs more into that idea of time and how it plays out when, as we've discussed, this poem is divided into two basic pieces of eight lines and six lines. The eight is in two pieces of four and the six is in two pieces of three and they both are joined by different rhyme schemes but that the feeling that that can create and the way that you experience that linear progression through the work even if it doesn't you know have a progression in the time of the story it's telling like in sonnet 90 you don't necessarily get a sense of time passing in the poem necessarily but there is time passing for you, the reader, experiencing it. So the amount of time you spend in the portion of the poem that is laying out evidence for you versus the time you spend in the part that is more dedicated to the thematic underpinnings of the poem, that disproportion creates a feeling. And because of the way that you're experiencing that in time, that is kind of something that she is teasing out as being really important. And we'll link to this article, and I highly encourage you to actually read it because it's very long, very good, and goes into a lot more depth of this idea. But I just wanted to throw that out there as being, you know, an interesting uh, addition to the conversation about like what did Petrarch bring to this form that is so special? Yeah, no, I I'm really glad that you brought that up, and that yeah, that really recommend reading that piece by. Uh, by Yoon. Um, and I think, it, I, yeah, no, I think it's really right because, you know, we, and we did talk about it a little bit in the last episode, you know, a lot of, which is something she says too. It's like a lot of poems have turns, you know, um, but it's this eight, six kind of disproportionate thing um, that makes this particular turn in Volta unique. Um, which I think also, you know, and and when I, when we were talking about the Volta in the, in the last episode, we were we talked a bit about movies and um, you know, like one common thing, at least if you think about like a super mainstream like by the book movie, is that the inciting incident happens a lot of times like within the first fifteen minutes uh, of the movie. And that kind of like timing is, I don't know, it's, it's, it's once I learned that, like sometimes I noticed like when movies weren't doing that and it like has, it has a different effect. Um, and similarly, like the idea of the poem happening through time um, and, and having that, you know, <laughs> hangover effect is really interesting um, because it, you know, just as like the most obvious point of contrast, if if the sonnet was 16 lines and it's eight, eight and eight, you know, it's it's two octaves, there's much more of a balance. Um, and that can go any number of ways. You know, it's not like that limits it to one kind of thing, but um, the the shorter close, I think, gives the the Petrarchan sonnet, 
a lot of its power for sure. Um, I feel like the 16 line version and friends, Connor has not seen the MCU movies. So this is for all of you out there in, uh, he hasn't seen enough of the MCU movies. I should I've say started. He's, he's working on it, whatever. He's still early on in the infinity saga. Um, phase one, baby phase one. Yeah. Connor's stuck in phase one, but the, uh, my point is that this 16 line concoction that Connor has put out there, this perfectly balanced work and, uh, Listeners, y'all know where I'm going with this. A real Thanos of a form out there. <laughs> Got him again. Okay, as you were. Wow. No, I don't get that reference, although I've heard it many times. Oh, and you was... shall in time. You shall in time. Perfectly balanced. Perfectly <laughs> balanced. I'm, I started uh, Thor, the first one. Um, Shakespeare in space, Kenneth Branagh directing with more Dutch angles than you can shake a stick at. I mean, this is pretty on form for the Sonic conversation. True. Yeah, that's interesting. And we will be returning again tomorrow for a discussion of Shakespeare and uh, his whole dealio with Sonnets. Absolutely. I'm excited. Before we go, I got a question for you, Connor. Oh, On the theme of movies... Uh oh. Uh huh. Yeah. What is the adventurous poet's favorite movie? Ah, uh, what is it, Jack? Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Petrarch. Oh no! Oh yeah! Yikes, a Rooney! <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time.